Hey y'all, what is going on? What is going on? It's your girl, Melba Pearson, Melba for Miami, Melba for Justice, also known as the resident legal diva. And it is time for another Mondays with Melba. So it is February. Happy Black History Month, y'all. Uh, was unfortunately the shortest month of the year, but definitely a month to be able to, number one, learn more about Black history and the contributions of Black folks to this country. And also, it's another great opportunity for you to support a Black-owned business. So all of this month, I will be featuring various Black-owned businesses in a variety of different fields. So you can't say that, oh my gosh, I don't know a person of color that does immigration or that does health work or whatever the case may be. Like, I got somebody for you, okay? So super excited for our amazing guest today, Tremaine Hemans, who is, oh my gosh, I... I've been following this amazing sister since she was in law school, and now she's out here doing big things in the immigration space. So Tremaine, thank you so much for joining and welcome to Mondays with Melba. My pleasure. I'm super excited to be here. Honestly, like you are one of those people who really stands behind us law students. If we need anything in school, I remember there was someone who was interested in your field of law, and I was like, this is the person, you know what I mean? And she says you've taken her under her wing. So that's just who Melba is. So having been able to like be on your show is really humbling right now. I'm super excited. So thank you for having me. So, so, so happy to see you on the show and all the amazing things that you've been doing. So let's dive into that. Can you tell folks a little bit about your background and you know why you decided to get into the immigration space? Well, I came to the country initially as an international student myself. So I've been exposed to the immigration process in the U.S. since I was 17 years old. Um, I've always wanted to be a lawyer, like the typical story, eight years old, watching TV, 12 years old, whatever the case may be. When you know, you know. And I've always been that kid, always arguing. I uh, never got in trouble because I talked myself out of everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've always been that kid. So I always knew I wanted to be an attorney, but it really focused in when I came to the country and I know a lot of people go to law school not knowing what they wanted to do but that was not me I worked as a paralegal before going to law school myself so I knew that this was the path I wanted to take and then when I got to law school and really figured out how laws are made and how you know humanitarian procedures and everything I really really developed an even bigger passion for the field so there's really nothing else I wanted to do so when I graduated law school I hit the ground running I worked for a really high volume asylum firm and I learned a lot about the asylum process and the adjustment of status process. My then boss was very good at you know, providing lots of information and ways for us to learn what we needed to learn. So that was a great first job. But uh, during the pandemic, I was also part of the Great Recession. <laughs> so yeah, I did decide that, you know what, I think it's time for me to go out on my own. Things really changed in the workforce about how, you know, we were expected to show up and, you know, the different procedures based on COVID and everything. So I just decided, I think, you know, it's time for me to go out on my own. So I opened the Hammonds Law Group in May of 2021. And I've been running on the treadmill ever since. You know, we focus on family-based petitions and immigration court defense. I primarily do adjustment of status cases, consular processing cases, and I also handle asylum cases in the immigration court. 
Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, if you're not, so first of all, full disclosure, she's a Yachty like me. So we're both of <laughs> Jamaican ancestry. Her a little closer than I, because I, I was born, born and raised, born and raised. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it, love it, love it. But a lot of folks are not aware of the process to become a citizen, right? Like you hear stuff in the news and bits and pieces, but unless you've actually walked through that process, you know, most people don't have intimate knowledge of how it works. Right. So can you walk folks through the different pathways that one can become a citizen in this country? Of course, of course. Excellent question. So there's a few different ways you can come to the country. A lot of people think that you can only do it through marriage, especially our people, Melba. But there's actually a broad range of ways that you can actually obtain residence in this country. So there is the family-based version, yes, where if you're an immediate relative of a U.S. citizen, which immediate relative means a spouse, a minor child, or a parent of a U.S. citizen, then yes, you have an immigrant visa immediately available to you. And sometimes you can even get your green card while you're already in the country. You know, asterisks, some things may apply, conditions apply, <laughs> of right. course. But yeah, so there's that that route. And then also, if you're a family member of a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident, if you live outside of the U.S., there is also a process called the immigrant visa process for you, where they can petition for you to come to the country to come live as a personal, a permanent resident as well. Then there's employment-based version, um, pathways to citizenship or investor visas. Like you can literally buy a green card. Let's, let's just be real. That's what it is. If you have the right amount of money, <laughs> Uh, you can amount of money, by the way. Okay. Oh, it's over a million right now. Mm, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a few different types of them, but yeah, the, yeah, over a million, honestly. Yeah. And um, you can invest in a company here or open a branch of your company in the U.S. And what they, they see that as you providing jobs and opportunities for Americans. So that's why that pathway is available as well. And also your job can actually sponsor you for a green card to come and live and work in the United States as well. And then there's the humanitarian basis, right? So there's certain things where they will allow you to um, have a pathway to citizenship, meaning you can get your green card and then eventually become a citizen. Uh, if you've, let's say, for instance, if you're afraid to go back to your country, that's really the basis of asylum. If you're afraid to go back to your country because you've been persecuted by the government or a group that the government refuses or cannot protect you from the gangs that they should be allowing people to do but that's for another time yeah. <laughs> you can file for asylum and that will allow you to you know get your green card here be able to actually get a work permit like 180 days after you file uh, for asylum so that's another pathway then there's things like T visas or U visas. T visas are for people who have been trafficked. So there mm -hmm. are, uh, yeah, there's pathway to citizenship for people who have suffered those kinds of horrors and also for people who are victims of serious crimes. If you assist the police or are willing to assist the police in solving that crime, they can, you know, allow you to get um, a, a green card through that process. It's a long process, but a pathway mm -hmm. to citizenship nonetheless. So those are the general ways that people usually um, get citizenship or residency. Yeah, because I do remember the U visa, like the only thing I knew about immigration for the longest time was the U visa process from being a prosecutor. So many times you have mm, yeah. where you have a survivor of domestic violence who, you know, married a, a, a person, came to the States and they were abusing them, held, mm -hmm. you know, would not file paperwork for them, held their passport. Mm -hmm. 
wouldn't allow them to work, et cetera, if they were willing to testify against their abuser and go through the entire process, yes. then the, the office would sign off on a visa for them to be able to stay. Yes. So now that brings me to something else that I did forget to say. One of my main practice areas are cases involving that because a lot of times these people don't realize that if that abuser was a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, you can actually self-petition for your green card based mm -hmm. on their citizenship. You know, of course, there's certain requirements that like you have to be able to show that you live with that person and you have to also be able to show that you guys entered into the marriage in good faith, like it's a real marriage, not a green card marriage right. and things like mm -hmm. that. But if you can prove certain uh, things, they'll give you a green card based on that. Of course, it takes some time again, but definitely not as long as the U visa. Wow. Okay. Definitely good to know. Definitely good to know. So pivoting to Title 42, because we've yeah. seen that splashed all over the news. That's, that's it's like, thing. <laughs> what does that mean? It came into being under the last administration, but it might end under this administration before mm -hmm. maybe not. So what's the story behind that? The thing is, Title 42 has been around since 1944, at least that little portion that they're using. It's been around for a really long time. Uh, I'm going to be candid, Melba, you know me. <laughs> No one's just been crazy enough to use it to stop immigration, you know what I mean? But that's eventually what happened. So that's a part of the law that pretty much deals with public safety and health concerns and things of that nature. So during the pandemic, the previous administration during 2020 decided to use that to effectively stop the asylum process through the border, which, you know, for a limited time, we understood COVID was surging and whatever. Okay. Right. But the fact that they left it in place and were effectively using it to stop due process because asylum is a legal thing that you are supposed to be able to ask for when you come to the United States border, you're supposed to be, there's a process for it, right? So people are entitled to seek asylum at the border. Uh, but um, during the pandemic, the culture of that completely changed because they literally were just sending people back. I actually had a client where I had to chase them to find them in detention and force them to do the interview they're supposed to do before they put him back on a plane to Haiti. So immigration lawyers were scrambling and they were making it very difficult. The CBP and ICE officers were not working with us. You could not speak to anyone. They would not accept appearances of attorneys. Like we're telling you their families, nope, they did not want to hear any of it. So that's just a real picture of what's happening behind Title 42. So of course, when um, President Biden came into office, he tried so he, there was an executive order, okay, this is over with, you know what I mean? We're gonna go back to the regular process. The pandemic is not what it used to be. We don't need this anymore. A few states sued. They went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court um, actually accepted a writ of certiorari, which is when the United States Supreme Court says, okay, we like this case. We're gonna make a decision on that or we're gonna discuss it. So <clears throat> it's actually at the Supreme Court right now. And they have said that it has to stay in place while they discuss it. So that's really why it's still, you know, a thorn in our sides, really. They try to get rid of it, but once it goes under federal litigation, then we just have to wait until the, the, the higher court makes a decision. So that's where we are with that. But under Title 42, you're not allowed, you're not uh, entitled, okay. Usually when you come through the border, when you're seeking asylum, let me tell you what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be given a credible fear interview, right? If you let them know that you have family in a certain part in the United States, Usually they'll release you on your own recognizance unless you have some criminal um, record or some national security issue that they have to worry about, then they may detain you. And then you'd go before an immigration judge and plead your case. Under Title 42, none of that's happening. You're just going to go back to your country based on Title 42. We're not sure if you're sick or not. You, you got to go. 
That's really what was happening. People were either being sent back immediately or they were put in detention for like a week or two weeks and then they were immediately sent back. So that's the picture of what's really going on. And what's the whole deal about having to remain in Mexico in order to fill out paperwork or whatever? Because right. my understanding is beforehand, you could come to the border, present yourself and say, hi, you know, I'm well, fleeing X, Y, Z. Yeah. And then you take it into custody and you go down the process. That but was another another um, program that came about in the last administration, the Remain in Mexico program, where honestly, there because during the pandemic, we really did develop a border crisis where a lot more people were trying to come in. Everybody, all of these governments lost their minds. It was already bad to begin with, but now you're, you're having places where there's no real health care. People are scared. They're just trying to come to somewhere where things make sense or seem to make sense, like just help, right? But the Remain in Mexico procedure was to have people being processed in Mexico. But there's also something else that's been under asylum law, really. If you can show that um, you already resettled in another country before you came to the U.S., right, then you, you would not be allowed to seek asylum here. So, mm. yeah. so you need to be coming directly well. from the, the impacted country or the country that you're fleeing from. So if it's you're fleeing uh, persecution as an LGBTQ person in the Caribbean, or if you're uh, fleeing instability in Haiti mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> just the whole thing is just very upsetting because I know that there are a lot of people with real legitimate fears, yes. as we'll talk about momentarily. Yes. You're looking at Haiti, looking at Venezuela, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. even Brazil and some of what has been happening there. Yeah. And normally you have that opportunity to present yourself and say, listen, I have mm -hmm. family here, like I, I can work, I want to work, you know. Yeah. But that just seems to be Mm -hmm. you know, but honestly, I, there's there's always layers to these policies and how they affect certain demographics. And if you really think about it, the people that are coming through the border are people who are indigent, people who are coming from countries where they're either not going to be granted a visa to come here so they can, you know, do the, the, the right way and come on the plane mm -hmm. and land and say, hey, may I have asylum, please? That's not the situation for most people. And for our people. That's not the situation that they're in most of the time. For instance, my country, there's really not much going on in Jamaica. We do abuse visas a lot. I will not lie about that. But it is the luck of the draw most times to get a visa in Jamaica right now, especially. Like you're not guaranteed because you apply for it. You know what I mean? Granted, that's everyone, but you will. I've had cases where PCs have called me potential clients and they're like, listen, I went to the consulate. I brought all the evidence you told me to bring. They did not even look at it. They just looked at me and denied me. That happens a lot at the cons. Oh yeah, that happens because it's a discretionary decision, mm -hmm. right? They're not allowed attorneys at these consular interviews. So they pretty much do whatever they want with people. And from certain countries, you hear those stories. And then from other countries, you'll hear, oh, you know, there's unrest in your country. Show up at our consulate and we'll give you a visa so you can come in. So right. You know, it, it depends on what you look like sometimes. And also the politics of your country, right? All because, right. you know, we're going to dive into this in a second, you know, around, you know, Cuba versus Haiti versus Venezuela and all of mm -hmm. that. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's been a lot um, in terms of trying to support 
the Cuban people because of the political ramifications, knowing where Cuba's located. The fact right. that, you know, it's a country that is a communist country that's 90 right. miles off the coast of Florida, right? So there's a political reason why they want mm -hmm. to make sure they can, you know, support exactly. more Cuban immigrants as opposed to Haiti, which right. there they is. They have nothing to give us. Exactly. In their estimation, there's no strategic value for the country. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's all of that. But mm -hmm. in looking at the racial aspect, because we were touching on that a little bit, you know, I think there's a narrative out there that immigration issues don't impact the Black community. You know, why Why is that incorrect? Because I feel like I heard a lot of that when I was at the ACLU, especially 2016, 2017, when the Muslim ban came into effect under the last you know, presidential administration. And so it sort of was like the, the, the visual of what a person that is undocumented looks like is right. somebody from Mexico or whatever the case may be. And they're not thinking, you know, other countries... Exactly. So what are your thoughts on that? I will tell you this, that that is literally the reason why I try to make myself so visible. For example, I cannot tell you how many people tell me every week that they've never seen a female Jamaican immigration attorney, which is crazy because I know so many of us, right. right? But people not only don't see ourselves in immigrants, they don't see representatives in the faces of immigrants. And when you move to America, you kind of develop this self complex. Right, like it doesn't affect me, so therefore it doesn't affect my people or anybody I know, so it's just not happening. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, immigration tends to be a sexy topic. So whatever is in the news is all you know about immigration at that time, mm -hmm. right? But it absolutely 100% affects the Black community. I literally wrote a published paper on it in law school because I could not believe. I didn't even realize how um, deeply affected we were as as immigrants with with this, this type of issue, even if you're not Black, you know what I mean? What I, I mean... Black and from the African diaspora, from Africa or some other nation. Um, people don't really realize that there's an issue until they fall in love with a Caribbean immigrant or something like this is what y'all got to go through. This is crazy. I remember when I came, because that's how I obtained my residency. There was this guy in college, you know, that sat behind me passing me lap notes and I ended up marrying him. <laughs> oh. I'm still married to my little husband. Hi, Adrian. Oh. But, um, my husband and I met in college and he didn't really realize what goes into being an immigrant here until you got with me. I got to pay three times the tuition than you. I have to get a certain grade, grade point average. I can't get sick. I cannot work anything, right? Because I have to adhere to the terms of my visa. Meanwhile, he's, you know, just chilling. I think I'll go to class today. Whether or not he goes, it's not going to be a problem because he's an American citizen, right? So I think that is the disconnect. If it's not happening to me, I don't really know what's happening. But I really want to make sure that I give some people some actual numbers on why this affects us, okay? So in the last 20 years or so, more than um, the, the amount of black immigrants has increased by about 2 million. Wow. Right? And then in 2022, more than 40% of the families at ICE detention centers were Haitian immigrants, mm. 40%. Mm. The average bond was six, because if you're in immigrant detention, some people are allowed to, to seek bond. The average bond for a Haitian immigrant is $16,700, which is 54% higher than what someone who is not a Haitian immigrant would have to pay. Oh, my God. 100% affects us. 
Wow. 100%. And mind you, we, we represent like 6% of the, the undocumented immigrants in this country. So for 40% of the people in detention to be Haitian, it's glaring. It's glaring. And if you don't, if that doesn't, if all those numbers are confusing you, look at what's happened in the last year with Ukraine versus the crisis in Haiti. There is a Save Ukraine campaign. Those are the people I was talking about. You show up at a consulate in some cases and you'll be given a visa. Granted, it's horrible what's happening in that country. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. no question. Right, but everybody deserves the same access. Haiti has been in turmoil for however many years. They're treated differently than Cubans, different than any other country that's going through any kind of crisis. It's completely different. Everybody else got relief for you to be able to come here some kind of way. The Venezuela had this relief, the, the new one, the new parole program, as we're loosely calling it. They got this relief way before the Haitian, the, the, the Haitians and Nicaraguans were added to it. And Cubans had it. Cubans just got added to that, but they already had their, they have several processes to assist them in coming here, right? But once they added the brown people, now there's federal litigation to stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, I think it's kind of putting your head in the sand to really think that this does not affect us at all, because it does. And it's kind of crazy because it sounds like from, from the statistics you're sharing that mass incarceration impacts Oh, not yes. only just you know the regular American citizen, oh, yes. and, you oh, know, yes. ending up in a private prison or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. but it impacts people that are seeking asylum, which of is course. something that America stands on. You know, exactly. like give us your time. I find that they're very sneaky with even how they refer to prisons in, in the immigration spectrum. They're not called mm -hmm. prisons. They're not called jails. They're called detention centers. Mm -hmm. And if you've been in Pompano, I have a new assistant, and it's always great training someone new on the realities of what our clients are facing. Cause I don't want anyone in here who doesn't understand like this is serious. Every letter you put on a form and every letter you put in a letter matters for these people. So I was telling her, I was like, you probably don't even realize it, but have you ever passed that pink building in Pompano when you're on, what road is that on? I can't remember right now. Power line. Uh -oh. mm -hmm. That big pink building that everyone thinks is a bakery is an immigrant detention center. And one of the worst ones, honestly. See, look at your face. You didn't know that either. Exactly. <laughs> about the one down in South, like in a home. Exactly. Because Chrome is ugly and it's a horrible place. And yeah. yeah, okay. But a lot of people don't realize that there's a detention center in Pompano right across from the waste management. That big pink building, that is a detention center. Right. So that's that's always the metaphor I use. Like that is what they try to show you. Like it's not, it's not prison. We're mm -hmm. just keeping you here until you know. But it's, it's prison. Can I go home? Can I leave and go to my family that lives down the road? No, I cannot. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah, definitely affects everybody. And a lot of the folks coming here have family members here, right? They're not just like yes. strolling yes. over the border, not knowing yes. a soul and just they exactly. have a destination, right? Exactly. But then again, there's this myth of, oh, it's just for the chain migration. Like, okay, there are people who abuse the immigration system. I will concede that. However, the lion's share of people who are asking us for this assistance are not those people. Again, at my, the first year and a half of my career, that is all I did was look at asylum cases and the horrible things that are happening in Central America, in Haiti, in Africa, in some parts of Africa, and um, in some other countries, but mainly in Central America, Africa, and um, Haiti, those are real issues that are happening. People are in fear of their life and they should be. In Venezuela, you cannot speak out against the government. You might disappear. True story. 
I've seen that so many times. Like they'll block you from getting jobs and everything if you're not um, a, a member or a supporter of the pursuit party. Like that's it's going to happen. And it's right. not like, oh, they're just stopping you from getting a job. No, the police might come to your house to detain you or sexually assault your wife in front of you. Those are some of the things that I've seen. You know what I mean? Like nobody's safe right now. And all people are doing is are coming to, to the border to seek the help that you, the U.S. was built on. That is what this country was built on. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just insane. But can you walk us a, a through what's happening with this new parole system for right. Venezuelans, uh, Haitians, and Nicaraguans, and how that, like, what what changes were involved in this this new right? System? So most people are calling it a parole program because it's kind of effectively like a parole program, but it's really called Processes for Cubans, Haitian, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. That's what they're calling it. Not a sexy name like parole, but that's what they're calling it, really. Right. So what they're saying is instead of coming to the border, what we're going to do is give you a way where you can apply to come through a port of entry. Right. So what that means is that you'll have to get someone to, to serve as a sponsor for you through what's a form that's called an I-134A. Doesn't even have to be a family member. If you know someone in the United States whose income can qualify, that person can submit that form. And if it's accepted by USCIS, there's going to be a process for you to be able to come to the airport to um, show yourself and be like, listen, I need help. They'll give you two years parole and a work permit if you do it that way. So that's what they're saying. Mm. Problem is, they're doing 30,000 of those for, um, per month. Uh. 300,000, sorry, per month. <laughs> that's, that's not nearly enough. Not. No, that's it's not. not. For everybody, for Cubans, Nicaraguans, oh. yeah, for not per country, for everybody. Oh, all inclusive. Ooh. All inclusive, right. So unfortunately, based on the numbers that we're seeing right now, the program just started, but it's not deterring anyone from coming to the border because what? First of all, in certain countries, it's not as easy as, hey, let me just go get a passport. Haiti's on fire. Not everybody's going to be able to do that as fast as you'd like to see. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. in theory, it sounds great. You know, it sounds great for some a, a sophisticated system where people, sh- you know what I mean? They wouldn't be running to the border if they could could do what you're asking them to do. Not everyone has internet access at the least mm-hmm. to be able to do what you're asking for. You know what I mean? People in Central America and in some certain parts of Haiti, they're not going to be able to do that. You know, so who is this really for? That part, that part. <laughs> because, you know, I, I think about... And, and you can, you know, definitely correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I remember when I was at the ACLU, you know, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, people coming and, and, and all of that. And again, a lot of these folks, you know, either had a job, so there was an employer that was bringing them in or, you know, um, a family member or something along yep. those lines. But what you'd often end up seeing is that one of the most popular ways of, I guess, you know, abusing the immigration system is basically overstaying a student visa or a visitor mm-hmm. visa. So yeah. you're somebody with means, right? And I don't mean like uber wealthy. I just mean you've right. got means, right? Like yeah. you're not broke. So mm-hmm. you buy a plane ticket, you get it, you know, you get a visa to come here as a tourist or as a student and you hang out for your three months, six months, whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. And when that time's up and you're supposed to go back to your country, you just don't. Yeah. So Which it's not I the majority do, of folks. It's not there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that do that, but I really feel like we also have a laissez-faire way of looking at overstays 
a lot of times people, parents and families scrape together and everything to prove that if someone can come here to go to school, mm -hmm. but you have to have someone who's a US sponsored. And I can tell you this, I get a call at least once a week of a student crying because they're like, listen, my sponsor just pulled out and I have to pull out of school. What do I do? Oh, no. Yeah. People don't think about that, but that's usually how like a student visa overstay happens. Or sometimes you come just to visit, you end up meeting somebody and then you're like, okay, I think I'll stay to try to get this done through whoever the person is. Or you just get bad advice like, oh, you can stay and get a work permit, which is not true. Please don't do that for the love of God, I'm begging you. Mm. That's not a thing, okay? But a lot, there's so much misinformation in the immigration community. So I have been working my butt off every week to make sure that whoever is listening to what I'm saying understands that visa overstay is never a good idea. Mm. Never a good idea. But a lot of people just don't know, honestly. Like they're not like, eh, most people don't come to the airport and be like, mm, I think I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to lie to the right. CBP officer, you know, and just go through. A lot of times you just end up in circumstances that, force you into overseeing and then you're just like, you know, but either way, that's a definitely a better situation to be in than the border crisis situation. Right. Right. Because you're not going to end up in a detention center. And not the exactly. right. Nine times out of 10, unless you do something to land you in there, because you are absolutely, they can, they can put you in immigration court for the overstay. Right. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that you don't end up initially in a detention right. exactly. center the same way if you exactly. cross the border. Right. Exactly. You're, you're chilling in your apartment and hoping. Correct that nobody because <laughs> they will kick down your door they, they, will. they will they will which is another thing that i was just telling um, my followers in live last week and they were horrified like they are actively looking for people right now ice is actively looking for people who overstayed on their visas so just because they're they may not have been looking for you does not mean that you're not on their radar so you always right. have to be careful mm -hmm. So many nuances to think about. So, so can you share your contact information with everybody? Because I know there's folks who either uh, will need your services or would like to refer people they know to you. So share absolutely, away. absolutely. Okay, so first, our telephone number is nine five four three one five three eight four zero. I do have braces, so forgive me. Again, that's nine five four. 315-3840. Our website is www.hammondslaw.com. That's H-E-M-A-N-S-L-A-W.com. The easiest way to find me is on all social media platforms at Legally Trim, L-E-A-G-L-L-Y-T-R-E-M. On Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, where all of my people live for some reason. <laughs> right. So um, we do have a large following on TikTok. So feel free to join the family and get some valuable immigration uh, information there. You can also directly send us an email at info at Once we receive your phone call or your email, we'll absolutely send you the information for how you can schedule a consultation. I represent clients in all 50 states, which I love because I get to travel all around the country fighting the bully. <laughs> yeah but so we do virtual consultations telephone consultations or in-person consultations and our office i promise i'm a real lawyer my office is located in fort lauderdale florida so if you want to do an in-person consultation that's available to you as well 
Love it. Love it. If you're listening on the podcast, um, the information will be in the body of the description. If you're listening on any other or viewing on any other platform, uh, there will be a link in the comments to her website. So that way you have the opportunity to read at your leisure and be able to share the information. So uh, thank you so much, Tremaine, for the work you're doing in our community and for spending some time with me today. Of course, I do appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. And I love you. I love you too, boo. And to all the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another amazing Black-owned business. So definitely tune in and take good care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>